turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 15 for today's study. Ezekiel chapter 15. Growing up in Applegate Valley as a kid, beautiful valley out in the middle of nowhere uh, in Southern Oregon, um, back then especially, like uh, there was not towns or anything nearby. Uh, you know, we'd go into town once a week uh, and get some supplies and then go back out. But, um, but we had a little farm uh, and it wasn't huge, but it, but it was a small but mighty little farm. <laughs> you know, we had a garden. The garden was about half the size of the sanctuary. It was a pretty good sized garden. We had an orchard that was about the other half of the sanctuary. Uh, it was an orchard with, uh, we had apple trees, pear trees, peach trees, uh, all kinds of good fruit. Um, you know, we had blackberry bushes everywhere because we lived on the Applegate River. And we had trout that we could catch out of the river. Uh, back then, in the, before the dam was put in, uh, you could catch these beautiful little rainbow trout out of the Applegate. Um, we, it was just kind of this, um, I, I felt a little bit like Tom Sawyer. I, I grew up pretty much Tom Sawyer. My, my next door neighbor was Huck Finn, uh, Kirk Daly. Uh, it was kind of a great way to grow up. But, but the one thing I didn't like is all the work I had to do on the farm, because we had to do tons of work. We had cows, horses, sheep, rabbits, uh, we had dogs, we had um, uh, quail, chickens, uh, horses, and, uh, you know, and, and we both had beef cows and dairy cows. So um, that, that's a lot of work, a big farm like that, orchard with lots of trees. We had bee, honeybees. Uh, my dad had to do those hives, to get out his bee suit and do all that stuff. But I'll never forget that one evening, my mom, at, we were at the dinner table, we had this beautiful dinner that my mom had made. And she said, she announced to us, she said, everything we're eating and drinking here at the table is from the farm here. And uh, now some of you are like, oh, that's just so great. And some of you guys are like, we should do that. Well, that's the problem. I tell my wife about these old farm stories and Debbie's like, honey, we should get it. We should do that. And I'm like, wait a minute, it's a ton of work. Like. <laughs> Like, it's brutal. Like, we never went on vacation, ever. Uh, it, and that's true. Like, seriously, I, I don't remember ever once going on a vacation as a child um, because we had a farm to take care of. It's not like you get the neighbor girl to feed the quail, the sheep, the rabbits, the chickens, the, and milk the cows. And uh, like, the cows don't stay milked. Uh, that's something you didn't, maybe didn't know that. Yeah, they ever, you gotta do it. Um, now, uh, all that to say, I look back on it fondly because it really was an amazing thing, but even more now as an adult and as a Bible student, I'm so thankful for all the things I got to see as a kid growing up, having to do with farm work and animals and, and the imagery, because the Bible uses that cover to cover. The Lord uses analogies and illustrations that kind of, if you've spent a little time on a farm, you, you kind of go, hey, I know what that's about. Um, you know, what does it mean for a cow to kick against the pricks? Uh, Brad, are you even supposed to say anything like that in church? Yeah, it's, it's a thing. If you're plowing with cows, you gotta know what that actually means. Um, or, or this idea of you know, the fruitful vine and, and the vine dresser and the husbandman and all this stuff. By the way, we had an orchard, but we didn't have a, vi a vineyard. Uh, my family being teetotalers, we weren't into the fruit of the vine as much uh, at all. <laughs> but um, we had some neighbors a couple miles down the road and um, they had the Valley View Vineyard. Um, and it was a big winery there. And, um, but my next door neighbor, Huck Finn, Kirk Daly, he worked there almost all summer at the, wine, at the winery there, the vi vineyard. 
And, uh, but sometimes they'd get a little overrun with busyness. And so they'd ask for me to come along and I'd get paid to work in the vineyard a little bit. And it's interesting how even that, I got to learn how you kind of clean up the, the vine and, and how you go down the rows and, and you gotta lift the branches that are laying in the mud. And you gotta clean them and bring them up and make sure they're fastened correctly. And, and, uh, you know, and even the pruning processes and all that stuff. I got to learn a little bit of that stuff as a kid. So that when I read a chapter like Ezekiel 15, I've got the imagery right there in my head and I, I can kind of picture what the Bible's saying because of that experience. And I'd love to try to bring that home for all of us here in this story, this chapter uh, that Ezekiel gives us. So we're gonna cover the whole chapter, just like yesterday, we covered a whole book of the Bible at the Ironworks. Uh, it was Second John, so <laughs> 13 verses, but we did a whole book of the Bible. And today we're gonna cover a whole chapter uh, Ezekiel chapter 15, verses one through eight. Let's take a look at this. As Ezekiel the prophet says, and the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, what is the vine tree more than any tree or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Shall wood be taken thereof to do any work or will men take a, a pin of it to hang any vessel thereon? Behold, it is cast into the fire for fuel. The fire devoureth both the ends of it and the midst of it is burned. It is meat, is, is it meat or helpful for any work? Behold, when it was whole, it was meat for no work. How much less shall it be yet for any work when the fire hath devoured it and it is burned? Now pause just for a second here, what, what's that? Um, the, the prophet says, what good is a vine? And his answer is nothing. You can't make furniture out of it. Like he says in you know, verse two, he says, you can go in the forest. Why is the vine any more important than a tree of the forest? Man, if, a, if you take a tree of the forest, like a fir tree from Oregon or a cedar from Lebanon there in uh, north of Israel, you could get a big piece of furniture or a plank or a board, or, or it even says, can you use the vine to make a pin and hang up a piece of pottery? In other words, can you take and run it on a lathe and make it a circle, a little pin and a dowel, stick it in the wall and hang pottery? He says, no. In other words, a vine is worthless. Now, we're gonna point out what a vine is good for, but it's not good for any of those things. And if the vine is cut off and it's just laying on the ground, it's only good for fuel to burn fires. And then he even makes the point after it's burned, what good is it then? It's even less valuable. Um, and totally worthless. And then he turns his gaze from the Ill, uh, illustration, the, the uh, idiom here of the vineyard and the vine to Israel. In verse six, therefore, thus saith the Lord God, as the vine tree among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so will I give the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will set my face against them. They shall go out from one fire and another fire shall devour them. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have committed a trespass, saith the Lord God. If you've been studying with us for the last year, we've been, of course, in you know, these books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, now Ezekiel, these prophets were trying to initially tell the Jews, man, you gotta repent 
of your evil, wicked ways. And they were, if, if, if you're just joining us, I'm gonna give you the nutshell, but we've been going over this for about, about a year. So uh, it's, it's brutal. The Jews had pretty much forsaken the Lord and they were worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth and these gods and goddesses. These, they build these beautiful you know, uh, statues that were paganism at its finest. And God said, that's the thing that I abhor. And you guys have done this. And by the time Ezekiel comes out here, now Ezekiel's saying, listen, um, you guys are like the vine that's supposed to be a fruitful, blessed vine, but instead you've become a curse and you've become good for nothing. And God's gonna take you, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the, the, the broken branch that's disconnected and he's gonna throw it in the fire and it's gonna be even worse than good for nothing after the fire. Well, Brett, thank you. That's a real encouraging Sunday afternoon service. Okay, God, uh, if, you don't, if you're not good, you're gonna burn in a fire. Well, as it turns out, that's actually true. None of us are good though, that's the problem. We're all sinners, just like the Jews in Jerusalem. So that makes us nervous. Are, are we gonna go to hell because we're sinful? Well, as it turns out, yes. It amazes me how people say, what, you, you're gonna, God's gonna send people to hell? Mm-hmm. But actually God doesn't send people to hell. I, I believe it's more like this, you send yourself there. You see, we sin, and the Bible says the cost of that sin is death, eternal death in hell. So th this passage is a little difficult because some people just say, well, it's about God sending people to hell. But it's way more nuanced than that. Yes, there are people that are gonna go to hell, and it's if, if you're disconnected as a branch, uh, and you're fruitless, and you're dead, which we're all born into sin, so we're all dead in sin, then that death, that sin leads to hell and we send ourselves there. But God says in 2 Peter, I would that none should perish, but that everyone would repent and have eternal life. This is what God wants for you. It's, it's, it's up to you whether or not you're gonna accept the gift of salvation. But I get ahead of myself. This story is about a specific group of people, the Jews, God's chosen people who had rebelled against God and God said, you have become useless to me. So the men of Jerusalem, you're gonna be burned in the fire and you're good for nothing. That was his redirection, his correction upon them, his, not punishment really, as much as it is a correction. I want to also point out that he's not gonna completely destroy the Jews because God made a, a everlasting covenant with the Jews that's still in effect today. Do you know that? The covenant between God and the Jews, it's still, still there. Um, but these Jews had turned so much, God says, you guys are gonna be judged for this and you're going down. But he would leave a remnant because he made a promise to the Jews that he would uh, eventually bless them. And uh, that, that comes later. But one of the idioms of, the, of not just Ezekiel, but the whole Bible is God likens the Jews and Israel to a vine of the vineyard. Um, let me show you some of my favorites. Isaiah chapter five gives us one of those scriptures. There, the prophet Isaiah said, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done on it or in it? In other words, God's saying, man, I got the soil ready and I nurtured the soil and got it all you know, um, you know, full of nutrients and whatever, the, you know, it's the perfect situation to be a, a, a vine of the vineyard. But it says, wherefore, when I looked at it, it should have brought forth great, bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. You say, well, cool, Brett, wild grapes are good too. I'll take grapes any way they come. Well, actually in the Middle East, the wild grapes are good for nothing. They're sour, 
bitter and you can't make wine, grape juice. You can't even make raisins with these things. They're just horrible. And so here the Lord's saying, you guys, you, what, what more could I have done to set you up for success? But because of your paganism and your evil, now when I was looking for good fruit, I found wild grapes, bad fruit. That's what Isaiah the prophet's saying. But it's not just Isaiah, it's Jeremiah. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter two, verse 21, he says, yet I planted thee a noble vine. He started out good. I planted you a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? The Jews started out a noble vine, but because of their sin and their separation from God, they became a degenerate plant. That's Jeremiah's word. Even Hosea the prophet gets on the, the bandwagon. Uh, Hosea chapter 10, verse one, he says, Israel's an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. That's the, the wild grapes that are horrible tasting. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased. The altars, that's the pagan altars. According to the goodness of, of the land, they have made goodly images. These fancy images that were really pagan images. The Lord says, what happened to Israel? They became an empty, fruitless vine. And because of that, the prophets indicted the Jews and say, man, you've, you've walked away from the Lord. Now, what about this? Is, this, is this? is God done with the Jews? I have to say this at this moment because most of the church of Jesus Christ today in the world, a lot of them believe that Jesus, uh, when Jesus came, died on the cross for the sins of the world, that the Gentile church replaced the Jews. And I talk about this often because um, so many Christians, they, they, they don't realize they've got a really wrong teaching about the Jews. Um, we need to understand God has never and never will forsake the Jews. He's promised that he wouldn't. And if you say God has forsaken the Jews, you're making God a liar, that's a problem. And not only that, you say, well, Brett, he's destroying them in Ezekiel 15. No, he's, he, there's a season of Jews that were so rebellious, the Lord judged them, but he left the remnant of the Jews to grow and continue to be a mighty nation. God still has a plan for the Jews. Understand that. This is so essential for you to understand because um, if, if, there's a couple of reasons why you have to be careful with this. If God forsakes the Jews because they were bad, what keeps God from forsaking the church because we're bad? Like if you think we're better than the Jews of the Old Testament, uh, you gotta take a look at the church and the condition of the church today. It's not good. But praise the Lord, it says, I will never leave you or forsake you. His promises, there's some conditional covenants that God made with the Jews and with us. But many of the promises of God are unconditional promises and covenants. And so don't make the mistake of thinking that God has re replaced Israel. Now, this is an important thing as far as the vine of Israel. The vine is supposed to be good and blessed, but it's, it's still a vine and it's still alive. And guess what? Paul the apostle, in talking to you and me, the church, Paul says, listen, you guys, the Gentiles, you have been grafted into that vine. See, that's the problem when, you know, some people say, forget the Old Testament, that's for the Jews. We read the New Testament, like Andy Stanley, you know, said that a few years ago, and I couldn't believe he said it. We need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Um, I hope that you guys listen to some of these Bible teachers carefully, not just, you know, Andy Stanley, do carefully with me too. Everything I say, everything pastors say on the radio or on your favorite podcast or 
do what Acts 17 11 says, search the scriptures and see if what that pastor is saying is true or false. Um, is it true that we should unhitch the church from the Old Testament? You're making me nervous now. The answer is absolutely not. Like that's one of the dumbest things I've heard a pastor say in a long time. Um, do not unhitch from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is this beautiful picture book of the, what the Lord's doing through the Jews, but it also unlocks the truths in the New Testament. Without the old, we miss a whole bunch of stuff in the new. Don't unhitch it, embrace it. So here we are reading in the Old Testament about this vine and you think, well, that has nothing to do with me. Let's unhitch ourselves from that. And then along comes Jesus and he says, I am the true vine. What is that about? And my father, Jesus says, is the husbandman. We'll get into that in a second. What's that all about? Well, see, Paul says, no, you, you, you gotta understand Gentiles, don't be arrogant Gentiles, Romans 9, 10, 11, but he has grafted you into the vine. Now on my farm, we did do grafting. I, I got to see this as a kid. And this, this guy who knew how to do it, he would bring these branches and he would cut them ever so carefully and, and he would you know, bring this slimy stuff and he would stick the branch up on a fruit tree and then he'd start wrapping it and sliming it and he joined it together. And then eventually that branch would start to grow into the other branch and it would become part of the tree. And it was cool to see you know, an apple tree giving a peach. Uh, like that was kind of cool, the grafting of trees and vines and stuff. I got to see that. How smart would it be, let me ask you, um, if you were to do all that work and graft a, a branch into a tree carefully and wrap it and slime it and get it all grafted and ready to grow together. And then your next step is you fire up a chainsaw and you cut the tree down at the trunk and knock it off. Um, what would happen to your little branch that you grafted, anybody? Yeah, see, that's good. The last service, they just looked at me like, I don't know, tell us, Brett. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> Portlanders are like, uh, yeah. If you cut the tree off here, uh, the tree dies. <laughs> it dies and your little branch dies along with it. So for people to say God has cut off the Jews and we're the church, that's the same brilliance of cutting off the trunk because the Lord, we don't, we're part, the, Christianity doesn't replace Judaism, it fulfills Judaism. The Messiah, Jesus, is Jewish and he came and he's gonna be the Jewish Messiah too, just like he is for us Gentiles. But the, the, the Jews right now, blindness, the Bible says, has happened in part to the Jews, Romans 9, 10, 11. And we've done sermons on how the fullness of the Gentiles, then all of Israel shall be saved. God still has a beautiful plan for the Jewish people. And that's important. Um, the people that are replacement theology people think we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Uh, watch out for that. Uh, you say, well, who really believes that? All of Catholicism, most of Presbyterians, uh, like there's so many churches that believe in replacement theology. Most of them don't even know what they believe on that because they never talk about it because they don't teach the Bible to begin with. Um, but that's what, their, that's what their theology is. Watch out for that. Can I just give you that warning? Check the scriptures, see if what I'm saying is true or false. But that brings us back to Jesus. And he's connecting, Jesus is the great connection from the Old Testament to the New. Would you turn in your Bible with me to John 15? And this is where Jesus brings up the vine issue uh, of the vineyard, John chapter 15. And I already, you know, sort of quoted this verse to you, um, but I want you to see it for yourself with your own eyes. <clears throat> uh, and this is where Jesus talks about this, love this. He says in verse one of John 15, I am the true vine. Implication, there's a fake vine. 
I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Now we read this and go, yeah, 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 okay, Jesus, the true vine, husband, God, got it. But do you understand the Jews would have been shocked when they heard this? The claim that Jesus was making here would have shocked the daylights out of the Jews at that time because the Jews, very familiar with their Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, they knew the idiom of the vine and, and, and the fruitful vine and the good vine, the noble vine that was corrupted because of sin. By the way, um, that some of the Jews during Jesus's time, they heard the messages and read Ezekiel 15. And some of the Jews by the first century were saying, the, the, the vine that's cut off and burned in the fire is not us. It's the Gentile people. That's what they started saying. It's what we do today. Have you ever been in a sermon? You're like, man, I wish Uncle Bob were here. He needs to hear this sermon. That old Uncle Bob, boy, he needs. But really the Lord's like, no, you're Uncle Bob. You need to hear this sermon. It's like, that's what the Jews were doing. Oh, the vine's gonna be cut and thrown in the fire. Oh, that must be the Gentiles. And by the time Jesus came on the scene, they had a phrase that they said, the, the, the Gentiles exist for one reason, to fuel the fires of hell. That's what they believed about Gentiles by the time Jesus came on the scene. But Jesus comes on the scene and says, listen, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. The Jews would have known the idiom of God being the farmer who gave the, the, the vineyard care. And to say that he is the son of the husband, Jesus was saying, I am the son of God and I am the true vine. This would have made them furious. That's why Jesus got into so much trouble. The problem is he was right. He was the true vine. He was the Messiah, but the Jews would reject him as Messiah. But then Jesus takes this connecting, you know, this, the vine that's in trouble of the Old Testament saying, I am the true vine and my father's the husbandman. And then Jesus go on and, goes on and explains here in John 15, how it all shakes out. Check it out. Verse two, he says, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. Mark that word purge, it's gonna come back in our study here. He purgeth, purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. Man, there's so much here. If you're a disciple of Jesus, if you claim to be or hope to be or wish to be a disciple of Jesus, one of the things that Jesus says here is, if you're bearing good fruit, much fruit, then you're one of my disciples. And, and, and Jesus even taught us in, in Matthew uh, earlier, he said, he said, you know, judge not lest you be judged. But then he said in the same chapter, he said, but you'll know them by their fruits. You'll know if they're the disciples of Jesus by the fruit that's in their lives. Have you ever wondered if Christianity tomorrow became illegal? Could happen. <laughs> I can see the way that happened. But 
suddenly being a Christian is illegal. And, and, and would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would people at your work go, well, that guy's a Christian? Or would, or would they say, man, I, no, I don't, I don't know. There's no evidence of that. You'll know my disciples by their fruit. Fruitfulness is something Jesus is into. And as it turns out, it's the same problem with the Jews. They were fruitless. And the fruit that they did have was bad fruit. And so the Lord indicts them in the Old Testament. And here Jesus, he's not changing the word. He's saying the same thing. But now we're talking New Testament times and Jesus saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you are connected to me, you'll be alive. But if you're disconnected from me, you're gonna be dead and you're gonna be thrown into the fire. So there's no new mystery here about what Jesus is teaching. Apart from Jesus Christ, you're not a disciple. If you're not connected to Jesus Christ, you're a branch headed for destruction. That's hell, it's real. The Bible talks a lot about that. In order to be saved, you gotta go through Jesus because Jesus even says it here, without Jesus, you can do nothing, especially get saved and be able to go to heaven. Without Christ, you can't do that. But I find that to be narrow. You are narrow-minded to say that Jesus is the only way. I think, I like to think there are many paths that lead to heaven. This is something that always cracks me up. It's sad actually, because the logic, we've just, we've lost logic in our culture. Logic has no place anymore in our culture, which is so sad, but, but think about it for a second. What model in the universe says, if you wanna to get to a certain location where the X marks the spot, can you just take any path that you wish to get there? There's no model of that. If after church say, hey, let's go to the beach, let's go to Cannon Beach, and you're kind of a new age kind of person, you're very open-minded, so open-minded your brain is falling out, so, so there you are. <laughs> you get into your car and you say, we're going to Cannon Beach, yay! And then you say, okay, so what I'm gonna do, I like to think of the trip to Cannon Beach as not taking you know, uh, you know, I, I, you know, 205 to I-5 to 217 up to 26 and you know, I don't, that's too narrow. I like to think of Cannon Beach as more of an Eastern city than a Western city. So you say, let's get on the freeway. Let's go, let's go east on 205, we'll go up on 205, and then we'll, we'll go up on 84, and we'll go east on 84. And I like to think of it as about a half hour drive. So I'm gonna drive just a half hour on 84, and then we'll, we'll get out of the car and we'll play on, on Cannon Beach, it'll be awesome. Because many paths lead to Cannon Beach. <laughs> you see how stupid that is? If you're gonna go to Cannon Beach, at some point, you're gonna have to get on Highway 101. That's, there, narrow is the path that leads to Cannon Beach. <laughs> it's so goofy that people think this stuff. But you know, who cares about beach trips? We're talking about the trip to heaven, the most important trip you'll ever make. And the Bible says there's one way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father, which is in heaven, but by me. And here Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you're just a dead branch on the ground that's gonna be thrown into the fire. But I like to think, who cares what you like to think? <laughs> what we actually need to care about is what is actually true. I know this sounds like very elementary, but our culture, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Our culture is like, we've lost all logic whatsoever. 
So on this topic of, of salvation, man, that's the key. Jesus is the way, he's the only way. And anybody who claims that there are many ways, they've been drinking their bathwater. Run for, for your life from them. That's horrible, don't, don't believe that. So here in John's gospel, Jesus uses this vine analogy, just like Ezekiel saying, you gotta be connected to the vine. God the Father is the husbandman, and in the New Testament view, the vineyard is not Israel, but people who are spiritually dependent on God, we need to be connected to the vine, Jesus Christ. So that starts to uh, raise some questions. First question to ask before we finish up today. Number one, what does the vine do? Um, that's an important thing. If you're the vine connected to the vine, Jesus, what does a good, healthy vine do? Well, we've already learned from Ezekiel 15, he doesn't, it doesn't make good furniture, right? You can't, you know, nobody's gonna walk into a beautiful home in West Lynn and you see the, oh, look at a, you know, a, a grape, a grape wood floor. No, grape wood floor would be horrible. It wouldn't even last 10 minutes. You want a floor that's gonna be like a hardwood that's gonna last more than 10 seconds. Grape wood floor, stupid. Ezekiel says, you can't even make a dowel to hang a pot on out of a vine. Like there's no wood, it's, it's just good for burning. So if it's good for nothing, Ezekiel 15, our text, what is a vine good for? Anybody wanna take a stab? Bearing fruit. That's the only thing a vine is good for. And here it is, the il illustration that Jesus and the Old Testament uses, God's people, the Jews, and also now in the New Testament, us that are dependent on Jesus, the church. What is, makes a vine worthwhile? for you, for me to be fruitful. Apart from that, we're good for nothing. Oh, wise is the man, wise is the woman that understands that you exist to please God and fruit pleases God. Revelation chapter four, verse 11 says, thou art worthy, O Lord, for thou hast created all things and all things were created for your pleasure. Whether you know it or not, you exist to please God. When you figure this out, it just, it just changes everything. Some people think they exist to be successful and then they'll be happy if they're successful. But I know a lot of so-called successful people that are very unhappy. In fact, the people with the biggest houses and the fanciest cars are some of the most unhappy people I know. I mean, just look at Hollywood, they're all miserable. Um, you know, they're suicidal, they're drug addicted, alcohol, you know, they're, they're, they're angry and upset. Like, it's a funny thing. We should all learn the lesson that, wow, a big house in Malibu with a pool and some fancy cars, uh, as it turns out, it doesn't really make you really that happy. But this is the secret of the Bible. You exist for God's pleasure. When you're living for your own pleasure, you're miserable, but if you're living for pleasing God, it's amazing how you sort of miraculously, mysteriously suddenly find contentment in life. It's not about you, it's about him. It's about being connected to the vine, the source of life and pleasing him. So, so what does the vine do? It's supposed to bear fruit and please the father, the husbandman, the farmer, that's the imagery of the vineyard of the Bible. And then it starts to beg the question, do you have fruit in your life? Are you pleasing to God? I'll leave that hanging there just for a second and bring you to point number two. What does the vine do? It's supposed to bear fruit, number one. Number two, how does the vine produce fruit? Well, that's where Jesus gives us a little lesson here in John 15, the scripture we just read. The first thing we gotta remember about being a vine that's producing fruit, Jesus says, you must abide in me. That's the first big, big one. 
What does it mean to abide in the vine or to abide in Christ? Years ago, when I was uh, going to church on a Sunday morning, my practice at that time particularly was, you know, Joey was in sixth grade, my son Joey. And uh, the girls would often go with Debbie and Joey would come with me. And Joey just loved being at all the church services. He was there for all day, you know, hauling chairs and teaching Sunday school and, you know, doing all, playing with his buddies and stuff. So he loved just being at church. So he'd come with me early to the first service. And, um, and we'd always stop, our tradition was to go to 7-Eleven and get one of those little uh, Nestle chocolate milks. And that was our nutritious breakfast, you know. <laughs> So we'd be sipping our cho- chocolate milk on the way to church, you know, and, and uh, but I remember this one Sunday, I was doing a sermon on John 15, I am the vine, you're the branches, if you abide in me. And so I said, hey, Joey, I said, what, is, um, what does it mean to abide in the vine or to abide in Jesus Christ? And Joey thought about it for a second. He said, well, dad, and, and, and by the way, this, his answer was so profound. I literally went and just wrote it down because it was so good. Um, I thought this is awesome. So I wrote it down here's what it said. Uh, Joey said, it's like when you're going across the ocean and you're in a big ship. Sometimes you get tired of being in the ship. Sometimes you even get seasick. But you know, you still have to stay in the ship because if you jump out, you're toast. <laughs> I'm like, that, that's right. Can I use that today in the sermon? Like, that's really good. It's totally true. You're, you're, to abide means to just stay put, even if you don't want to, but just to hold tight, stay put. And, and if, you, if you don't abide, man, that's dangerous. You gotta stay connected to the vine. Just hang in there, don't jump ship. And, and, and really, Joey nailed that because it's, it's true. That's what we're called to do. As the vine, the church, as a Christian, as a disciple, you gotta just hang in there and be a, connected to Christ because he's the source of life. Anytime you disconnect, there's no more life. There's no more nutrients going into your spiritual soul. You gotta stay connected because without him, you and I, we can do nothing. Abiding implies stillness. One of my jobs was to water the uh, trees in our orchard because we didn't have an irrigation system that was legit at that time. So it was me in a long hose in the summer, standing at a tree like this, and I had hours and hours of watering trees by hand. But I never once observed those fruit trees that were quite fruitful there in our orchard, our peach trees, our pear trees. The pear trees were my favorite because my mom made this pear jam that was to die for. But, uh, but, but I'd be there watering. I never once saw a tree striving or struggling to produce fruit. As it turns out, I never saw a branch quivering going, hey, Okay, this, this pear tree, need a pear, need a pear. <laughs> pear, didn't see that, no pears popped out. It was just a branch being connected to the trunk and just slowly being nourished to where there was fruit. There was no striving involved. That's what it means to abide in the vine and have fruit. It's not a striving thing. I see churches and Christians make this mistake all the time. And I have to confess, I've done it myself where I've been busy trying to manipulate and conniving, you know, figuring out how can I manipulate or finagle like all these things to happen. Come on, let's make, let's make some fruit. But I, I, I think sometimes we get too busy trying to force it and it's not good fruit, it's wild fruit that doesn't actually work. But when you abide in the vine, be still 
and know that I am God. That's part of the attributes of being a Christian. And it's a hard one. You know, there's a lot of topics where we just get ahead of ourselves and we think we're helping the Lord. But Christian, be still. Let me give you an example of this. You know, I, I see um, being a single uh, Christian these days is hard. I pray for our single people all the time, especially if you're a single who really wants to be married, but that, that opportunity just kind of hasn't happened. And so I, I, I know these days we live because there's this weird pressure that our society puts on you and expectations. It drives me nuts. I see a you know, 21-year-old girl, I'm 21 and my biological clock's ticking, t- 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 ticking, clock is ticking and, 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 and I, I'm 21 and people think I'm old and not married yet. It's like, that's just a weird, crazy pressure. It's ridiculous. Um, and I hope our, our singles don't get caught up in that. But, but a lot of times I see it, having done over a thousand weddings, I've been around some of this where there's been some manipulating, finagling, trying to make it happen, and that never works out. You want good fruit, not bad fruit. Um, there's some good examples, by the way, on the single issue in marriage in the Bible. In fact, the very first you know, couple in the, in the world, Adam and Eve, they're in Genesis 2, but also Isaac and Rebecca is another good example. But, but uh, how did Adam meet Eve? Did he finagle and make it happen? Was he naming Mr. and Mrs. Hippo, Mrs. and Mr. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Alligator? Hey, where's my missus? Is that how that went down? So Adam went down to the, the, the rave party in the Garden of Eden. And there it is, you know, it's just busting out. And Adam's like, hey, you know, and he's running around. Like, like this is a scary scene right here, if that's what happened. Gotta find the, 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 the lady. Was he running around, looking around the bushes, you know, beating the bushes, trying to find a girl? No, no. What was Adam doing when he found his bride? Anybody? He was asleep. (laughs) God put Adam in a deep sleep. There he is. I'm not sure that's exactly how he did it, but in my mind, that's what it was like. And when he wakes up, bam, there she is. Well, Brett, that analogy is not great because they were the only people on the earth. So they, they saw each other, great. Yeah, but, but Adam didn't get his bride by finagling. He just chilled out and the Lord took care of it. Genesis 24, Isaac wanted a wife. Abraham, Isaac's dad, wanted a wife for Isaac. So he sends his servant, Eliezer, who is a beautiful picture of, type of, for you Bible students, what is Eliezer a type of, anybody? The Holy Spirit, that's right. The Holy Spirit, and it's a great story. I wish we could even go into it deeper because it's such a cool thing. But Eliezer is the servant of the father who goes and finds the bride for the groom. This is kind of cool. And, um, and all of a sudden, Isaac, what was he doing when he meets his beautiful bride, Rebecca? What was he doing? Anybody remember? He was sitting out in a field meditating on the Lord, praying just sitting in a field. He wasn't at the rave party, (laughs) wasn't doing that. He was out there in a field praying and suddenly this caravan of camels and servants come riding up and this beautiful girl, Rebecca, and she's riding this camel. And the Bible gives us the first mention of smoking cigarettes. It says, and Rebecca lighted off her camel. (laughs) Sorry. It doesn't mean that actually. It meant that she got off the camel. 
Now, by the way, when we go to Israel, I, I, I take us into the um, West Bank, the hills of Jerusalem, and I, I, there's this desert thing where we go and we get off our bus and then our buses just drive away, you know, and then we're standing out there in the desert and they're like, our tour group's like, what are we doing? And then all of a sudden these guys come around with all these camels and we all get on these camels and then we ride to, to dinner, uh, to Abraham's tent um, uh, on camels in the Middle East. It's kind of cool. But one thing I've noticed, like, remember when I was talking about riding donkeys, how you can't look cool riding a donkey? Well, as it turns out, you can't look cool getting off or getting on a camel. Uh, camels are like super tall. Like, you think you're like riding a horse? No, it's like twice as high as a horse. So you're way up there. But when a camel, get, when you get off a camel, you have to get it to go to its knees. And so you're like, you're on this weird saddle on the point of the hump. And all of a sudden the, the whole camel goes, whoa! And you're like, whoa! You know, and it's so funny. I got all these great videos of our people. Ah! Like, like, it's great, you know? And the camel goes down and then all of a sudden the back legs go, whoa! And it's like, whoa! whoa! And, and then you get off the camel and you can't do it gracefully. Um, even Lawrence of Arabia is great. Whoa, It's like, okay. But, um, but that's what happens. This beautiful girl rides, <laughs> and then she gets off and, and they're in love. What was Isaac doing? Nothing but meditating out in the field and the beautiful girl comes. That's one of those ones, I don't know why I'm harping on singleness, I guess, but it's just one of the ones I, I hope so much greater things for our singles instead of feeling that pressure to manipulate and go and figure it out. Let the Lord do that. What if I end up single? Paul says in the Bible, those of you who are single, I wish that you'd stay like me, single. He, Paul said, those of you that are married will have trouble. That's a promise of the Bible. <laughs> Memorize that one. Put that on your mirror. And we married people are, you know, oh, marriage is awesome. Uh, but it, no, we all love marriage. It's true, marriage is great. But it is hard, it is challenging. And singleness is awesome. And you can do great things as a single. So anyway, this idea of abiding, just abide. Hang in there, be connected to Christ. Don't finagle, don't, and don't do that, not just singles, but everything in life. Well, this idea of abiding is key. But there's a second part of this that God, through Jesus telling us here, who is God, Jesus says, listen, not only abiding, but he also uses this word purging, which can also mean pruning and cleansing. The Greek word for the purging is one that, it's kind of a tough one for us to translate, but purging, pruning, cleaning, all of the above, it's what the vine dresser does as a husbandman or farmer to the vineyard to make it fruitful. And it includes all of these things. Now, what's interesting in the scripture that we read there in John 15, did you see the one there? Um, well, before we get to that, Jesus, remember when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet? And there, Peter says, hey, you shouldn't be washing my feet. I should be washing your feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash your feet, you can have no part with me, Peter. And then Peter, always saying the wrong thing. Well, then Lord, my head and my hands also, just give me a bath from head to toe. And Jesus said this, you know, he said, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. In other words, your feet are dirty. Your feet need washing. What's that whole thing about? And why did Jesus give us that story? It's a, it's a spiritual truth. If you're a Christian, you're clean. Jesus died once for all your sins, past, present, future, the sins you've not even committed. Hebrews tells us Jesus died once for all. So, so that's why 
some people worry about this. Have you ever met a Christian that says, man, I'm worried. I went out of church and I took communion and I was pure and forgiven. And then I was driving down the road and I thought an evil thought. And then, then if I get in a car crash right now without confessing that sin, would I go to hell because there's an unconfessed, undealt with sin in my life? Well, that's just not right. See, Jesus died for all your sins, past, present, future. Positionally in Christ, we're forgiven for all those sins. Practically, however, you and I all know, we know that we do sin. We make mistakes. But the Bible gives us kind of a, a different provision for the daily kind of practical sins that we deal with. He says, hey, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, and, and there's a purifying thing that happens when you get into the word. And that's where John 15 comes back into the play. In fact, this verse almost seems out of place if you don't know what, what's being talked about here. Here's Jesus saying, I am the vine, you are the branches, if you abide in me. And then all of a sudden he says, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And then he goes on about abiding in the vine. Was, did somebody just stick this verse in the middle of that and it doesn't make any connection whatsoever? No, the cleaning of the vine is what makes the vine fruitful. Abiding, yes, but also a pruning and a cleaning makes that vine fruitful. There's a progression in John 15 that we were reading here. The progression is this. It's if you're connected to the vine, you'll bring forth more fruit. But then later on he says, but if you abide in the vine, you'll bring forth much fruit. I love the progression there. And, and then he says, but also there's a pruning, purging, cleaning that takes place. And then Jesus says, guess what? Now you, the vine, the church, the Christian, you are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. Did you know that that daily dirtiness that we get from our sinfulness, even though we're forgiven and we're gonna head for heaven, there's still a cleansing daily that we need to be considerate about. And that is a cleansing that comes from the word. Now you are clean. Did you know that when you go in the word, it's like taking a bath spiritually? That's what Jesus says. Now you're clean by the word that I've spoken unto you. Also, remember Ephesians 5, 26? Jesus is talking about how he tends his church, the bride. It says that he, Jesus, the bridegroom, might sanctify and cleanse the church, it, with the washing of water by the word. Psalm 119, I love it, verse nine. How, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed there to according to thy word. So to be a fruitful vine, you gotta abide, but you also have to let the Lord clean and wash you. The very thing we used to do at the vineyard to get the branches up out of the mud and get them back to where they're growing and fruitful. Let the Lord do that. The pruning, the cleaning, the purging. Okay, so, so far we see the vine and these issues. How does the vine produce fruit? By abiding and being pruned and purged. Um, what does the vine do? It brings forth good fruit. Number three on our list, the next one on the list. So what does good fruit look like? And this is an important one because um, the Jews had fruit, didn't they? But it was a wild grape and it was gross. And it was a detestable plant. Um, what does good fruit look like? Um, interesting, when the Bible talks about fruit of the Christian, there's a couple things. Let's go through one that's kind of important. Did you know when you lead someone to Christ, if you are a, a Christian who shares the gospel with someone at work and they accept Jesus, that's some serious fruit right there. The Bible talks about it. In fact, Paul the Apostle talked about it in Romans chapter one, verse 13. He says, now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that 
oftentimes I purposed to come to you, but was let hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. And the context of Romans one there is the fruit of new believers. Well, bro, that's your job. You're the pastor, that's what we pay you for. You're supposed to preach the gospel and get people saved. Uh, and uh, our job is just to not do that. <laughs> oh, can I tell you Christians, that's so, that thinking has hurt the church greatly. I'm thankful when people come here and accept Christ and it happens every weekend and we love it. But, but I also feel like there's thousands of people in your neighborhood and where you work that would never set foot in a church like this. They would never listen to a guy like me. They, would, they, they could care less what a guy like me has to say. But something about being a neighbor or being you know, in their homes or talking at work. You know, some of you are covert operatives as far as evangelists. Are you a plumber? Man, you get to go in people's houses in the deepest, darkest places, <laughs> the very bowels of the home. <laughs> and there you are. And there's a bunch of lost people. And guess what? You get to be as a plumber, a salt and light. Are you, are you ever able to or will? Well, Brett, I have a policy at my work where I'm not supposed to say anything. Um, Man, you are called more, <clears throat> more importantly, to be light and salt in this world than you are to be working for you know, Plumber Joe's or whatever. You're called to be a covert operative and to share the gospel with people. Oh, how we need the church to remember you're supposed to be salt and light. Oh, so people need to hear the gospel, not from me alone, but from, from you guys, you're the ones. That's, that's some of the greatest fruit, by the way, the Bible talks about. But, but, but if we wanna boil it down even more simple than that, we go to Galatians 5, where we read about the fruit of the Spirit. Some of you have this memorized because it's such a big verse. We, we learned it in Sunday school. But it, it talks about what a fruitful life looks like. And what is good fruit? Well, it looks like this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or self-control. Against such, there is no law. The fruit uh, bypasses all the laws and rules and it's just a Christian who's tapped into the vine, who's producing great fruit is gonna have these attributes. Can you ask yourself right now, how am I as far as fruit bearing? Because the Bible's saying some heavy stuff right now, if you think about it. The only thing a vine's good for is producing fruit. If it's not producing fruit, it's good for nothing. Ezekiel 15, our text. The Jews had to learn that the hard way. Jesus said the same thing. If your vine is not connected to me, it's a dead branch, it's gonna be thrown in the fire. But once you're connected to me, Jesus says, abide in the vine, be you know, fruitful, and you'll bring forth much fruit. So, so the Christian who's, who's sincere and listening to Jesus has to ask themselves, am I seeing good fruit in my life? Love, joy? Peace, goodness, gentleness, meekness. Am I seeing these things? Well, Brett, I like what you said about you're either connected to the vine or you're not. You're saved, or you're not saved. Fruit bearing, I could kind of take or leave that. The problem is there's some truth to that. Um, there's people that had very little fruit in their life that are saved. I'd say the thief on the cross. What fruit did he have in his life? He was a thief and he was there next to Jesus. Maybe he never did a good thing in his life except for on the cross, he said, remember me. That's all he said, remember me. And Jesus said, I will remember you. And today you will be with me in paradise. And when he gets to heaven, what kind of fruit does he have to show for his life? Um, we know he made it to heaven because Jesus said he did. But did he 
is he gonna be right up there with Billy Graham, who led, you know, millions of people to Jesus through the Crusades? Like, like what kind of fruit is he gonna have? And see, some of you are saying, Brett, I don't care about fruit, as long as I make it there. Uh, some of you are gonna get there and you're gonna smell like smoke. Some of you, you're gonna get there and we're gonna run up, hold on, poof, 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 poof. Oh, okay, good, <laughs> good to go now, welcome to heaven, whoo, boy. Um, so, some of you are like, that's all I care about, bro. As long as I make it to heaven, who cares about fruit and all that? Well, that's the last and final thing as we consider why does fruit matter? Why does a, a vine that bears fruit matter? It's because the Bible says it matters and it says it over and over again. And there's even a judgment to see how much fruit your life had and whether it was good fruit or bad fruit. And the question is, if it matters, and Jesus is talking about fruit, don't you think it matters? Uh, it's, it's wrong for us to think, oh, I don't care about fruit because uh, I just wanna make it to heaven. Um, it matters because the Bible says it matters. And, and you know, if you're a, there's two judgments mainly that we could talk about. If you're a broken off branch and you're not connected to Jesus and you're a sinner and you're gonna go to hell, well, you end up in a, a judgment in Revelation chapter 20 called the, the, the great white throne judgment. But the vine that's, that's, that's attached to Jesus is saved. They don't go to the great white throne judgment. Thank the Lord for that. We as Christians go to what is called the Bema seat judgment or the judgment seat of Christ. And that's where you'll be judged according to your works or the fruit of your life and ministry, life, what you did. And, and it will matter. It, it comes, by the way, if you're wondering, one of the main mentions of this is 1 Corinthians 3.11, where it says, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's being attached to Jesus. Without Jesus, you can do nothing. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, Jesus, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, every man's work, that's your deeds, your fruit, shall be made manifest or made known, revealed for the day, the judgment seat of Christ, Bema seat judgment, the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Isn't it interesting that this language of fire is part of the vine. They throw the branches in and, and, and some of it burns up. But here, what comes out of the fire is it if you did things that was good fruit, it's like building a house with gold and silver and precious stones. Question, what does fire do to gold and silver? Anybody? It purifies it, it refines it. And that's what's gonna happen with your good works and the good fruit of your life as it's run through the fire of the beam of heat judgment of Christ. It'll come out and the Lord will say, well done. And you get a reward. The Bible talks about how you get a crown. I remember as a kid going, yeah, whatever. I don't like crowns. As a kid, I remember thinking, if I got to heaven and you get rewards for works and it was a YZ 125, now there's a prize right there. Count me in, good deeds. But a crown, crown schmown. Or a mansion. The Lord's preparing mansions. And, and that's not even a good translation, honestly, of uh, you know, first, or John 14, where Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. The word is dwelling places. And we don't even know what that is. Um, but it's not a mansion. See, as a kid, I was like, yeah, whatever. I don't care about the Piddock Mansion and crowns. But, but it's the Bible's way of using valuable things in human you know, uh, terms to try to get us to understand that when you go to the Bema Seat Judgment, the rewards that you get at the Bema Seat will matter somehow. 
And, and it's hard to even, we don't even have time to get into it, but when you get a crown, the idea is you get a, get a crown. Remember the old hymn, crown for crown will exchange? What's that all about? It's when you get before the throne of God, you'll wanna have some way to worship God with the rewards that you gave and your ability and your capacity to do that's gonna be affected by this, where what you do is gonna be made known. Your, your good fruit or bad fruit. If it's wood, hay, or stubble, it's gonna just burn up. So some of you, hey, I gave of my tithe in the tithe box as I was walking out. And the Lord says, well, let's give that a trial. And he puts it in the, the trial by fire and it burns up. I just, I gave my money. Yeah, but you're a single guy. There were some hot girls sitting over there and you were trying to impress them as you were like, look at my tithe. I'm now putting it in the box. <laughs> look at me. <laughs> hey, baby. And, and the Lord says, no. And that's just, that's wood, hay, and stubble. But you're the person who secretly does something before the Lord and, and, and quiet. See, I, I, I worry that the people that are listening to me right now shouldn't be and the people that should be listening to me aren't. aren't. What do you mean? Some of you moms out there going, Brett, I don't have any good works. I don't have any fruit. I'm not a pastor or a missionary in Africa. I'm up to my elbows in dirty diapers. I got preschoolers at home. Can you understand, moms, that that's some good fruit right there? Some of the greatest fruit in the world might just be mother work through kids. And the Lord sees the stuff that nobody else sees. Nobody's patting you on the back. Pastors, man, we got it. It's horrible. Hey, Pastor Brett, good word, man, good sermon. Jesus, you just got your reward. Congratulations. And so we pastors are gonna be way back there in heaven with our binoculars going, who are all those ladies up there by the throne? <laughs> oh, those were the moms who did stuff in secret. And I've rewarded their good fruit of their labors. See, we have to have an honest look about what is good fruit in our lives. And, and, and at this judgment seat of Christ, it matters because it changes how you exist for the rest of eternity. Your capacity to enjoy or to serve in, in, in eternity is somehow affected by what happens at the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. Yeah, but Brett, won't everybody be happy in heaven? Yes, I believe so. Every tear will be wiped away, no more sorrow. It's gonna be great. Well then again, if I get in by fire, that's great, whatever, I'll get there. But remember, your capacity will be affected. It's a clumsy illustration, but I can't think of anything better. Let's say right now I go into the two-year-old classroom and there's a little boy who's annoying the whole class and the teacher, but he's having the time of life. What is he doing? He found a toy pan and a toy truck and he's banging it, king, 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 king. And he's just having, giggling, having the time of his life. This is entertainment at its finest for a two-year-old. But as a 54-year-old, I sit down and say, son, let me give that a try. <laughs> and I take the pan from him in the truck and say, mine. And then I start banging it, king, 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 king. You know what? It's just not gonna do it for me. I'm not gonna get the same joy that that little two-year-old got out of it because you know what? I have a capacity to enjoy things different. Now take that same two-year-old and you know, your mom and dad bring him to my house and I put that two-year-old on my dirt bike, my KTM 2008 505, very powerful bike. And you know, put a little duct tape on him so he stays on okay. <laughs> now forget, I've never done this. This is uh, you children's <laughs> services people that are duct tape and, um, and, and I take the little two-year-old for a ride and man, I wheelie, do a little carving a berm and go over a big jump. I, I love that stuff, man. That's just, to me, that's fun. Pot banging in preschool, kind of boring. 
Dirt bike, that's fun. But the little two-year-old is horrified. How do you know, Brett? Because that was me. My dad used to put me on his bike and I'd be hanging on to the handlebars. And I don't even know how I ended up liking dirt bikes because I was horrified of them when I was a little kid. But, but my dad had this Yamaha 360 that was like a light switch. It was on or off, like fast or slow. And I remember just getting on, and I, and I, I hated it, uh, but I digress. What is your capacity? I wonder if some people are gonna be in heaven and, and, and as we walk into heaven, we see there's, there's, oh, how cute. Bing, 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 <laughs> we're in heaven, king, king, king. And you're like, oh, how cute. Now, now condescension won't be in heaven either. Um, but, but I wonder, some people will be pot bangers. Others might be ruling and reigning with the Lord in amazing places and doing incredible things for all of eternity. And, and, and I don't know all the nuances of that, but, but somehow the fruit that's in your life today will affect what your eternity like is, uh, is like in heaven. So it does matter. The Bible says it matters. Jesus takes a whole section of John 15 to explain that it matters. Good fruit is important. And if you're my disciples, you'll have some good fruit. That's what Jesus said. Some of you might say, Brett, I feel guilty, man. I, I'm, I've sinned and my fruit, some, I've got some bad fruit in my life. Well, that's what I love about the Lord. He's gracious and merciful, quick to forgive. And today you can have a brand new start. For that reason, I'd like to finish this service going to the table of the Lord of communion. Now, before you get to, uh, some of you I know um, struggle with communion and maybe it's because you were raised liturgically in a fancy church that had all kinds of rules around communion. The big question is, are they biblical rules or harebrained man-made rules? That's the big question. Some of you don't wanna take communion because you weren't baptized at Athey Creek. You were baptized in your church and you can only have communion there. You can't have it here. So um, do you know that that's just dumb? <laughs> that's not even in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible. Um, some people say, Brett, you have to have a, a fancy priest with a robe and a pointy hat. And, and you, Brett, where's your robe? Where's your pointy hat? You gotta put the wafer on my tongue for me. Equally harebrained totally made up by people. Uh, it's nowhere in the Bible. What communion actually is, is Jesus saying, when you eat bread and when you drink of a cup, you can take time and remember what I did for you on the cross. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul says, don't eat or drink unworthily, that I just not giving worth or value, just doing something ritualistically. Don't just blow it off, but to do it with great reverence, of course. But when you eat the bread, what you're doing is remembering the body of our Savior Jesus who went on the cross. It's that simple, but it's that powerful. So if you would, would you take the little pack that you got as you were coming in? If you didn't get one, some of the pastors are coming up the aisles as we speak, uh, and you can just slip up your hand. They'll get you set up with uh, one of these uh, bits of elements of the communion table. Um, these are coronavirus free. I love these. Uh, it's great. Um, and... Um, and here's what I want you to do is as you peel back that little clear layer, it gets you, gets you to the bread. And, um, and then I want you to hold that bread, the matzo, this little piece of bread. And let's, let's, let's think about this for a second. The nails that went through Jesus's hands should have been through yours. Do you understand that? Should have been through your feet. The crown of thorns, the whipping on the back, that should have been all of us because we're the sinners. But Christ took his body and his flesh was beaten and bruised, ripped and torn, 
because of my sin, we get to eat and drink of him. And when I hold this bread, I'm so thankful for what Christ did for me. He was the propitiation. That's just a fancy word doctrinally that means he was the substitution. He, he substitutionarily stepped in my place. When I eat this bread, I remember, Lord, thank you for taking the hit for me and for all of humanity, really. Lord, how thankful we are that we can give our lives wholly to you. It's in you we live and move and have our being. It's in you that we are the branches that find life as we tap into you. So bless this, your people, with um, these, your people, Lord, with great life and good fruit. Bless them, we pray, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Blessings on you, and we will see you next time. You are dismissed.